As you're having a seat, please turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1 and verse 12. My dad, he loves puzzles. He loves actually problems of all kinds. He likes issues that require him to think long and to think deeply in order to solve the issue at hand. And this can be in any field of study in any area whatsoever of life. That's just kind of the way he's oriented. And in recent years, he has become hooked on uh, these particular puzzles, these form of puzzles, these uh, steel puzzles uh, in which you have to remove one of the parts. So you'll notice, uh, moving from the left to the right, the left is the simplest puzzle that this uh, family makes. It's a family business. You just have to remove that heart. Second, you have to move, remove the heart as well, but there's Uh, two or three steps in the process. And then in the third, it gets a little more complicated. You've got to remove that ring that's near the bottom on the right. And uh, they actually have real simple puzzles all the way up to just horribly difficult ones. I actually brought one because I figured there'd be some among you who'd want to see one of these and put your hands on it. Uh, This one's called Double Trouble. I can't remember. There's like 30 steps in order to remove this little shuttle off of the thing. Uh, If you happen to, to visit my parents' house... It is quite possible that my dad will actually, he'll just hand you one of these and walk away. Uh, You know, my mom will come along, she'll rescue you, and you'll leave feeling, you know, loved and well-fed, but not necessarily from from my dad. So he's handed me some of these before, and I've worked on them, worked on them, and uh, I have to admit defeat. I can't figure it out. Actually, I'll I'll get through maybe one or two steps and, and... you can't break these puzzles, but I really have got them locked up, right? I don't know, I don't know how to go backwards. I don't know how, how to go forwards. The wonderful thing is that there's always a solution. I can always hand these to my dad, and, and he has literally, I'm not exaggerating, he has worked hours to solve every single puzzle that this family has ever made, from the simplest all the way to the absolute most difficult puzzle. So when I get stuck, I can always hand it to my dad. And if the event should occur that even my dad can't figure these out, you can write to the family and you can request a solution. They'll send it to you for free. Actually, I want you to notice the middle paragraph here. It says this, do you give up? Don't despair. To receive help in solving your puzzle, write to solutions and care of the address below, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end of the paragraph, solutions are free of charge. Your admission of defeat is all the compensation that we need. <laughs> Isn't that great? All you got to do is say, I give, I give. You're smarter than I am. You know how to solve it. I don't. Right? You're the creator and I'm not. It's a lot like life, isn't it? From time to time, we bump up against puzzles, problems, questions, and we don't know where the solution is. We can turn to the maker, and he can give us the solution. If we're humble enough to stop and say, I I give, I give, I don't know, I give up. Solomon faced a a puzzle, a problem, a question. He didn't know the solution. He didn't know the answer. Is there meaning to life under the sun? Is there meaning? Is there significance? Is there satisfaction that endures and lasts under the sun? He didn't know the answer to that question. And rather than turning to the creator for the solution, he said, you know what? I'm going to work this out. I'm going to figure this out on my own. I want you to read with me in chapter 1 and verse 12. Solomon says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun and behold all is vanity and striving after the wind. 
This morning we're going to talk about the topic of wisdom, so let's begin with the definition. Biblically speaking, wisdom is skillful living, right? It's not just data or information, but it's information applied to the exercise of life, how to live life well. Or if I can expand that definition slightly, it's education, information, understanding, knowledge, discernment, intelligence, insight that is used to one's advantage in life. It's learning how to take the information that you discover and to live well. Now, Solomon happened to be one of the wisest men who ever lived, right? But his pursuit of wisdom was not always directed by God. In fact, what you'll discover here in the book of Ecclesiastes is wisdom is viewed in two different manners. The first is a pursuit of understanding apart from God. That is what man can figure out on man's own. And Solomon will acknowledge there is value even in this. But the man who denies God, who rejects God, who, who denies even that God exists, can discover many things that are true in the world. Why? Well, because God has made us in his image. He's given us minds that are active and energetic and really are made to long to understand and to discover. So even for the person who rejects God, there's a lot that they can learn and understand. And wisdom and understanding or wisdom and knowledge are used almost synonymously in the book of Ecclesiastes. But then there's the wisdom that man pursues beginning with God. That's actually the perspective from which Proverbs is written. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. When Solomon writes Proverbs, he starts at that point. When he begins Ecclesiastes, he begins with what he alone, in a sense, on his own, apart from God, can discover. Notice what he says in verse 12 again, or verse 13 rather. He says, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under the sun. Verse 17, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize this also is striving after the wind. I set my mind is literally I set my heart. And in Hebrew thinking, the heart is the center of the inner man. It is not just the mind. It's your emotion. It's your will. It's your conscience. It is certainly your intelligence. It is all of the inner man directed toward one pursuit. Solomon said, I will solve this. And what did he discover in all of his pursuits? Well, he says it's vanity. It's striving after the wind. Wisdom itself even is a dead end. Or in other words, wisdom is a very weak God. Wisdom in a sense is not how I will find the answer to life's deepest questions when I seek wisdom on my own. Recall Solomon as the wisest man that ever lived was actually given his wisdom by God When he first began to reign, God appeared to him in a vision and God said, Solomon, I'm going to give you anything you ask for. What do you want? What do you most want? And Solomon, wisely so, rather than saying, I want riches or I want a long life or I want the lives of my enemies, he said, give me discernment. Give me insight. Give me wisdom to govern your people in a wise manner. And so God gave him wisdom along with many other things. Chapter 4 of 1 Kings, it says this. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all of the sons of the east and all of the wisdom of the east. And his fame was known in all of the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and crawling things and fish Men came from all the peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth 
who heard of his wisdom. Notice that phrase, God gave him breadth of mind. That is, Solomon was certainly concerned with with moral issues and social issues and spiritual issues, but also with the physical world and scientific world. He wanted to study plants and animals and fish. He wanted to study everything and understand everything because his mind hungered for knowledge and understanding and discernment. And after all of that, he would say, yet it is a weak God. Why? Three reasons. First, in the end, we actually can know very little. Of all that could be known in all of God's universe, a single man can know very little. Chapter 3, verse 11 of Ecclesiastes. Solomon says, God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. What's he saying? He's saying there's a hunger in man to transcend even his daily experience and understand deeply, understand everything that has been created and that is, and yet, although eternity is in the heart of man, man cannot seek out and search out all things. Chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 7. Verse 23, he says, I tested all this with wisdom and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? Chapter eight, verse 16, when I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task that has been done on on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. Though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. Psalm says, I'm the wisest man who has actually ever lived on the face of the earth. And I could seek day and night for my entire life, and I cannot know, but just a fraction of all that could be known. You know, I finished my uh, degree here at Texas A&M University, bachelor's degree, right? Greatest university on the planet. I thought, man, I know a lot, right? I have a bachelor's degree, but I hungered to know more. I wanted to understand more. So I decided to enroll in a a seminary, master's degree there. I did a a four-year master's program, which is just insane, right? After four years, you should have like multiple PhDs or something. But that's all I had. I had a master's degree. I I got a piece of paper and I put it on my wall and it said, Master of Theology. Yeah, you know where I'm going with this. I was not master. I was not master of theology. I'd studied Bible and I'd studied theology Say some Greek and some Hebrew. But I hadn't mastered these disciplines. If anything, I had a better sense of what the questions were that were out there and some tools to go after those questions. But I hadn't mastered it. I didn't know. In fact, one of my uh, personality traits is I actually, I love, I love to learn. I love to learn. I love to learn more and more and more. But I've had to acknowledge there's more that I don't know than I do know. You know, when I uh, first took my SAT, I, uh, I studied really hard for it, uh, in particular the English verbal section. I really wasn't very good at that. I was much stronger naturally in the math, so I studied really hard. And I remember as I was going through it the first time, I hit a math section, and I was just flying through it, right? This is, man, this is my strength. I'm flying through the math section. I finish, I look up, and I see that there are other people throughout the room. They're still working. I thought, man. <laughs> wise, right? I got, I got SAT nail. I'm good. Right. And you know, you get to the end of a section and the proctor says, you're done. Turn the page. So we're done. Turn the page. I turned the page and I realized I had not turned the page. And there were four more pages of that particular section 
left to do, right? Just basic test-taking skill in life. And I ended up, I had to take the SAT again. But there's, there's a moral to the story, and that is there's always another page to turn. Right? There's always another page to turn. There's always more to learn. And the more Solomon learned, the more he realized he didn't really know that much. It, wisdom is a weak God because at our best, even the wisest among us can only know a fraction of what could be known. Second, wisdom is a weak God because we can know without having the ability to change. Look at chapter 1 and verse 15. Solomon says, What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I realized that this also is striving after the wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Solomon says there are things that are bent that can't be straightened, that are lacking that you cannot find. Solomon, what he would have said, hey, this is my absolute greatest strength in life. I asked God for one thing. The creator of the universe gave me this gift of wisdom, and it is a futile pursuit when it is pursued on its own apart from God. Because there are things that I can know and understand, but I can't change, and man, that's really frustrating. Third, wisdom is a weak God because our pursuit is short-lived. Chapter 2, verse 15. As is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I bothered to be extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futile and striving after the wind." See what Solomon is saying is, no matter how wise you are and no matter how long you live, your pursuit will end. And you won't know, but just a small fraction of all that could be known. In fact, you won't be able to answer life's most important question by what you can find on your own. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6, Paul's discussion of wisdom. He says this, We do speak wisdom. A wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, a hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages for our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us the Spirit of God revealed them through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. See, what Paul is saying is the, the ultimate answer to the ultimate question of meaning and purpose and significance in life cannot be found by our pursuit. It has to be discovered through God's revelation. And God revealed it in such a way that to the mind of man it's a foolish thing, right? There is a God. Well, in, in the community in which we live, I would argue there are a lot of people who would deny that basic proposition. They'd say, that's foolishness. You believe in God? You believe there's an, an invisible power that's out there directing things in the universe, an invisible personality? 
You believe that that personality exists in three persons and one of those persons actually was able to come to earth and take on human flesh? And that somehow the death of that person means something to you in your life? That somehow that death results in the payment of your sin? What is sin? That's a foolish concept as well. Paul says, that's foolishness to the world, but it is the wisdom of God. It's what answers life's most fundamental questions of meaning and purpose and significance. That yes, God took on human flesh. And yes, God, God in flesh died on behalf of your sins to reconcile you to God. And that's why God has put an eternity in your heart that longs to be wedded to that eternity, which is God. But you can't discover it on your own. You have to receive it as truth from God. It's revealed truth. It's revealed wisdom. It's not discovered wisdom. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what, in a sense, as we said last week, it just opens the, wisdom, the, the window to understanding the nature of eternity and eternal realities and truth. And I would encourage you, if you have never believed in Jesus Christ before, he is the wisdom from God. He's truth. He's what gets you to the point where you can answer the question, why am I here? Why do I exist? What's the point of my life? Now, the tragic thing is that even for us who have believed as Christians, we still worship false gods. Even though we know that meaning is only found in the one true God, we still go after other gods that we think will bring us life and happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction. And that's actually what Ecclesiastes is all about. (laughs) Ecclesiastes is a wonderful book. It's one of my favorites. But it's also a crushing book because Solomon's objective is to just destroy every single one of the idols that you trust in. Just to level your life so that you rebuild it just on God's wisdom. And so what he does is he goes point by point after the gods of our world and he destroys them, including, as we're discussing this morning, wisdom. Because wisdom itself can become an idol. Remember, when the Bible talks about idols, it's not just talking about uh, things of, of stone or wood or gold or silver. It's talking about what our heart sets its affections on, believing that can give life. So as God speaks to Ezekiel in chapter 14. He says this, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts. What's significant is not the the physical idol. What's significant is what are they trusting in or who are they trusting in to give them life? And I would argue in the community that we live in, here in Bryan College Station, one of the most powerful idols is earthly wisdom. It is the mind of man. In an academic community, We trust in the mind of man. Let me illustrate for you. We're in the middle of an enormously significant political season right now, right? And so every candidate is differentiating himself or herself. uh, And they have to disagree over everything, right, to differentiate, right? So they're they're disagreeing on everything. However, they can't disagree about education and the value of education, right? You can say... You know, like Rand Paul, I'm not for a big defense spending, but you can, you can get away with that with a certain segment of the population. But you cannot say, I'm against education, right? Because education is the solution, right? You, you know, you don't, that doesn't even sound strange to you because you live in this town, right? I'm going to illustrate it for you anyway. Uh, current President Barack Obama, he says this. If we want America to lead in the 21st century, nothing is more important than giving everyone the best education possible. Notice the superlative. Nothing is more important. Nothing. Jeb Bush. 
If education is to be the great equalizer, which everybody talks about, that means that every child must have access to a great school and to great teachers. The great equalizer, that is, everyone is going to be brought up and be happy and healthy and wealthy. Through what? Education. Ben Carson, when you educate a man, you liberate a man. You want to experience real freedom? Education. It's not a new idea Uh, in our worldview or in the political world itself. George Washington said, the best means of forming a manly, virtuous, and happy people will be found in the right education of youth. How do you want to solve the, the deepest and seemingly most intractable problems of our culture? Educate people. Men and women, that is a false God. Okay, that is a false God that will fall short and will disappoint. What are the deepest issues we face in our culture right now? I'd argue one of them that just seems to be erupting right now is race. Racial reconciliation, racism, you see it every day, addressed every day. What is the solution, the popular solution to the problem of racism in our culture? Education. Education, right? Train people in diversity to understand and acknowledge the differences and to say no difference really is better or worse I should respect you, you should respect me, we should value one another. Right? But, but why? Why? Why should I value you and why should you value me and why should I respect you, why should you respect me, particularly when we don't agree on fundamental issues of life? I would argue, apart from a Christian worldview, that every man and every woman and every child is made in the image of God, apart from that, we're not going to learn to respect one another. I can approach someone who absolutely disagrees with me on everything, and I can still respect that person because I know they're made in God's image. And I know what God's design is for their life and for their present and for their future because they're made in the image of God, regardless of whether I can educate them to agree with me or not. And the fact of the matter is, education cannot overcome the deeply rooted sin that is in the human heart that causes racism, right? It can't overcome fear and anger and hatred and lack of forgiveness. It cannot. Education cannot solve those problems. I don't care how great your diversity training curriculum is. It will not solve the problem of the human heart, right? Poverty, huge issue in our culture today, isn't it? How do we overcome poverty? Education. Let's study the best economic systems, best monetary policy, and put those structures in place, and then let's educate the poor on how to enjoy that system and participate in that system, right? The problem is this. If you look at study after study after study, the primary cause of poverty in the United States is not a lack of economic opportunity. It is a disintegration of the social structures in our world, particularly family. And who made family? Well, family is a theological, spiritual concept. God created family. Adam and Eve, one man, one woman for life. And you know what? When a man and a woman stay together for life, typically, what happens? Well, the children do better financially. There's less poverty. But that's a spiritual issue. Education can't solve all those things. What about disease? What's the solution? Well, it starts with education, right? We need to teach people to eat well, exercise, manage stress properly. If those things don't work, well, then we've got research and development technology. We can come up with better pills and better surgeries to overcome your bad eating habits and your lack of exercise, right? So we can extend your life. The problem is we can extend your life, but we can't give you life forever, right? So 
You eat well, you exercise, you do the best surgical procedures and you take the best pills and then you die. (laughs) I hope that's not a shock to you this morning, right? Education, information, technology, intellect cannot solve the deepest problems in our culture. But in our community, we tend to believe it can, right? It becomes a God for us. All academic pursuits are ultimately an effort to understand the world and then shape the world, right? And they can be good, and they can be good gifts, but they can also become gods. I would argue in our culture, it's easy for them to become gods. So what am I saying? Well, if you're a professor, I'd say press on. I'm not not saying abandon your profession. Stop learning, stop thinking, stop researching. I'm saying dive dive even deeper and, and, and research and create good solutions that do good for mankind and benefit and bless. But acknowledge the limitations. Acknowledge the limitations. That's just wisdom. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says this. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. You cannot answer the deepest questions of life. Why is there meaning and purpose under the sun? Where do we find it? That's revealed truth. Can you do good? Yes, you can do good. And so go out, do good, bless. We'll talk about that more when we discuss work and the value of work. Students, what am I saying to you? Drop out? (laughs) Don't drop out. I strongly discourage dropping out. Don't go home and tell your parents, Sunday, the pastor said to drop out. I'm, I'm going to Colorado and I'm a river rafting guide forever, right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that at all. Stay in school. That's wisdom. But don't dream and believe that when you finally reach that goal and you've got a piece of paper hanging on your wall, that all of life will be good. Right? That's not where life is found. And that's what Solomon did. You know, the, the wisest man, he pressed deeply into wisdom and he discovered at the end, the question still remained. Why? Because wisdom is a terrible God. It's a lousy God. It's a weak God. But wisdom is a wonderful gift. Right? That's the second thing that he will say. Wisdom is a terrible God. It's a weak God, but it is a wonderful, wonderful gift. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 12. It says, so I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly, for what will the man do who will come after the king except what has been done already? And I saw this, that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. It says wisdom is good. It's, it's good like light is good and darkness is bad, right? Wisdom is so much better. When I was going through seminary, I took a lot of different jobs to kind of earn my way through and pay my bills. And one of the jobs that I took was as a security guard. And I mean, yeah, no, don't even think there's any glamour at all in it. I didn't get to carry a gun or a stick or anything. You know, my kids love it. They see pictures of me, you know, in my uniform with a badge. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it was ridiculous. It was actually a very boring job. I took it so I could study a lot, but I had to do my job. My job in one of the places where I was assigned was a, like a 13 story office complex in North Dallas. And after all the employees had left, you know, midnight and beyond, I would have to make the rounds. 
And, you know, it's not like I really needed to secure anything. I was just checking, making sure the coffee pots were turned off and stuff like that, right? So I'd have to go in every office, right? Office after office for 13 floors. And it was exceedingly boring. After I'd done this for a month or so, I decided, you know, I'm just going to memorize the layout of every office so that I can walk the entire building in the dark, right? So I wouldn't turn on my flashlight. I wouldn't turn on any lights. I would just walk the whole building in the dark. It was great because I, I learned where every desk was and everything. And it was great until somebody right, moved furniture. Right? And, ah, I mean, I literally, I had shins banged up. It was terrible. And there was an easy solution, right? Just turn on the light, right? Notice what Solomon says here. Verse 14. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. <laughs> the fool walks in darkness. Turn on the light. That's wisdom. Wisdom yields benefit. First, wisdom improves life. Life is better for those who are wise. Chapter 10, verse 10. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. Right? Really simple analogy. It says the man's out in the woods and he's chopping wood And if he chops and chops and chops all day, he never stops to rest or to sharpen his axe, he won't get as much done. There won't be as much success. But if he just stops and he rests and he eats and he drinks, he sharpens the blade, in the end, he will get more done. That's wisdom. And Solomon will argue here in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs, the wise have lives that work better. Generally speaking, they have better relationships, right? Because the fool's words are like, burning arrows going into the heart and they they create friction and conflict as relationships disintegrate they're not healthy the wise person their words are healing right they're like honey they're sweet they're wonderful and people are drawn to them and want to be with them the wise have better relationships the wise typically have more, more wealth solomon argues more wealth is a better thing generally speaking not always but generally it's a better thing the wealthy or the wise rather are those who learn to work diligently. Right? They plant their crops in the season. The fool is lazy. In fact, he gets so lazy that his hand gets so tired, he puts it in the bowl and he falls asleep before he can even bring it back to his mouth. What happens? His hunger grows as his poverty grows, as relationships fall apart. He said wisdom has the advantage of creating success. There's benefits in life. Wisdom works. Wisdom protects. Wisdom guards. Always? No. Not always. Look at chapter 9 and verse 11. It says, Again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the, to the discerning nor favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. Solomon says, you know, I live in the real world and sometimes this works and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you see the fool exalted and he gets really wealthy and really popular and everything seems to work well for him. And the wise, it just doesn't seem to work out well. Sometimes this is what happens in life. And sometimes we look out on the world and we see the same thing, right? Kardashians all seem to be doing pretty well. (laughs) Beautiful people and they're wealthy and they're so popular. It's wonderful, right? The psalmist, Psalm 73, said, I looked out on the world and this is what I saw. The evil were prospering and the righteous were suffering. And I wanted to go into the congregation and preach a sermon about it because it was really bugging me. And then he said, you know, but then I lifted up my eyes. And I realized, no. There is a reality beyond the sun. This is how wisdom works, but it's not a promise. And sometimes there are exceptions. 
But this is the way wisdom generally works. Follow wisdom because it's better than foolishness. Like light's better than darkness. Second, wisdom extends life. Chapter 7, verse 12. He says, for wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. In Proverbs, the phrase is, uh, if you live wisely, you save your soul from death. Okay, James picks up that same phrase. That is, wisdom typically allows you to live a longer life. And from Solomon's frame of mind, living a longer life is living better. Right? You would rather live long than short. In fact, there was a study that came out just this last year, University of Colorado. Uh, they, they studied education and mortality rates, and they discovered that higher education... So you finish high school and finish college, that can add up to 10 years to your life. Well, is it education itself? Well, education's part of it. You learn wiser lifestyles, but there are also correlated things like those who are educated tend to be wealthier. As a result, they can get better health care. As a result, they're part of a society, a culture that is healthier in general. There are all things that correlate to that, but those who get more education tend to live longer lives. Wisdom extends the life. To the contrary... Foolishness tends to reduce lifespan, uh, and significantly, okay, and significantly. In the study, they, they were able to calculate that the amount of education moving from no high school to finishing high school, how many tens of thousands of people would have lived another 10 years if they had just completed high school, and then tens of thousands more, almost 100,000 more, if they had completed college. And foolishness reduces lifespan. And just this last week, I, was, I witnessed two junior high boys who were um, doing something that I thought, you know, that's maybe not the wisest thing to do. We were in the HEB parking lot, and I watched this one boy climbed into the uh, shopping cart. And uh, it was late at night, you know, so the park, parking lot was clear, but one climbed into the shopping cart, and the other got ready to push him downhill. And, you know, being the one who um, pays the bills, I said, you know, maybe that's not the wisest behavior, boys. <laughs> I think I've seen you two on... America's Funniest Home Videos before, get out of the cart, right? Get out of the cart. This foolish behavior tends to end in injury, death, so forth, right? Some of you are going to graduate soon, okay? All of you who are studying, you're all going to graduate, okay? We believe. You're all going to graduate. <laughs> and then you're going to get a job, and you're going to get married, and you're going to begin to think about things like life insurance, right? You never thought about it before because you never acknowledged that you would die. So now, you know, you're in the stage of life, you go, oh, I could die too, so you say, I must get life insurance, right? And you're going through applying for the policy and there are boxes that you check. And for every box that you check, your rates are going to go up or down depending on what types of activities you participate in, right? If you smoke, your rates are going to be higher. No commentary on the morality of smoking. It's just not a wise behavior. It doesn't extend your life, right? Certain boxes you check, you cannot get insured at all. Now, you guys ever, uh, some of you, if you're under... 40, you know base jumping. You know what base jumping is, right? You, you parachute off of a fixed object. Base is an acronym. It's um, buildings, antenna, spans, like a bridge, and uh, earth, a big earthen structure, right? Did you know the, the uh, mortality rate for base jumpers is 1 in 60? What that means is for every 60 people who base jump, one of them will die from base jumping, Right? You jump off with a parachute or one of those, uh, like, a kite, like you're like a flying squirrel kind of thing. It's really cool. I look at it, I go, man, I'd love to do that. 
but I don't want to void my insurance policy, right? One in 60 die from base jumping. So, you know, I don't smoke, but I base jump. No life insurance. Wise behavior extends life. Foolish behavior truncates life. Wisdom works. Wisdom works. But there are always exceptions to this as well, aren't there? This last uh, couple weeks ago, uh, one of our own, one of our own, Sean Campbell, Aggie, a member of Grace Bible Church, his parents go to Southwood, uh, 40, early 40s, godly man, family man. He, he died in a helicopter accident in Hawaii. A good man, uh, working to uh, create security for our nation, living wisely, loving his family, parenting his kids, and yet there's an exception, right? Because wisdom works, but wisdom's not a promise. Wisdom does make life better, and wisdom does extend life, but not always. There are exceptions, and it's those exceptions that really bother us, right? Because we think we've got the world all figured out and put together. Here's the third benefit. Wisdom learns to accept life as it is in a broken, fallen world, not as we hope it will be or dream it will be or as it will be in eternity, but life as it is right now in this world. Read with me chapter 7, verse 10. It says, Do not say, Why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. In verse 14, In the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. That is, wisdom understands the boundaries and the limitations of wisdom itself. But God has not given us full information. He's given us a lot of information, but not full information. So there are things in this world and in our lives that we experience that we simply can't understand. We can't make sense of those things. Now, I will tell you, I, I don't know when it happened or how it happened, but there's a period in my life where, in a sense, wisdom or knowledge or, or education had become a God for me. Right? What I could figure out with my mind, what I could accomplish, what I could understand... And it was slowly and gradually through the experiences of life, through getting crushed by certain circumstances that I couldn't understand and I couldn't put back together, that I had a choice. I could either get angry at God and and, and frustrated with God and press deeper into my own pursuit of wisdom, or I could say, God, I give up. I will let you be God and I will not be God. And I will trust you that you will put all of these things in order and I will accept life as it is. Even the questions that I can't answer. And I sat with Sean's dad, and he was asking these questions, why? You know my answer? The only answer? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I would argue in this subculture we live in, in this community, saying I don't know is a really hard thing to do. Because we elevate Man. Elevate man. In freshman English at AM, I took honors English. Why in the world? God only knows. <laughs> it's a horribly difficult class. And I was given an assignment by the prof. He said, You need to write a paper for this class. And I'm going to give you the topic. The topic is this man is the measure. And he loaded me down with books about humanism, how man is the measure. He handed me those books and said, but I, here's the problem. I don't believe that. 
Gasp. In this community, can you say that? I don't believe man is the measure. I believe God is the measure. And man measures himself in relationship to God. And my paper flunked. (laughs) Paper flunked. It's an idol that must be crushed in the culture that we live in. So how do we apply this? I want to give you um, two quotes. I'm going to juxtapose two quotes for you and then give you a couple of specific applications. The first from uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. He said this, Life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of being eternal. Are you you tracking with that? Life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of being eternal. What he's saying is, you're not eternal. That's an illusion. But it's an illusion you certainly should cling to. Because if you can't cling to the illusion of being eternal, then all bets are off. There is no meaning if you're not eternal, and you're not eternal, therefore there's no meaning. That's what he's saying. Okay? Now, on the other hand, gave this quote from Derek Kidner last week. The preacher has good news for us once we can stop pretending that what is mortal is enough for us who have been given a capacity for the eternal. That's truth, men and women. And none of this makes any sense until we get back to this basic idea that what we see here and now under the sun is not the end of the story. It's not even the most important part of the story. So first application point is this. Simply, we've got to lift our eyes again beyond the sun. Okay? And find our meaning, our understanding of our significance and our satisfaction in life will ultimately come next. And we know that our eternity is secure because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. We will live forever. And these questions will not haunt us any longer. Periodically, we've just got to stop and put an eternal framework on top of all that we see here in this life, even the questions that we can't answer. And second, crush the idol of wisdom, knowledge, education, understanding intelligence. I, I, as I was thinking about this topic and preparing this week, I just prayed for us as a congregation because I know, as a matter of fact, that there are many of us here who wrestle with that. And it has to be crushed. Wisdom, knowledge, education is a wonderful gift, but it is a terrible God. But it is a wonderful gift. So, third point, seek wisdom as a gift from God. In fact, God says this, I'm the source of all wisdom, come to me. I give freely. I I would love to give you wisdom. I'd love to give you discernment and insight to see what cannot be seen unless the spirit illumines your, your mind and your heart to see. I want to give this as a gift to you. Seek wisdom, but don't worship wisdom. Let's pray. Let me encourage you who... who, um, may be wrestling with this or have wrestled, that you would allow God's spirit to remove wisdom from godlike status. You'd allow God's spirit to bring humility. When that happens, then you can actually really enjoy the wonderful gift that wisdom is to you. I also want to acknowledge that it's, it's a very humbling, humbling process, all that we're going through in Ecclesiastes, where we allow God to take the idols of our heart and, and crush them. We have to acknowledge that we've been seeking after things that are foolish. Let me encourage you to pray for one another in this. It's an, it is a humbling thing to ask for prayer from friends. Uh, I want to remind you, we do have people up front who'd love to pray for you, whether it's uh, an issue that's related to Ecclesiastes or your salvation or sickness or anything. It's, it's humbling for us often to ask friends to stop and to pray for us because we have to acknowledge we don't have all of life put together. Okay? But that's, 
a beginning point for wisdom. Say, God, we do not understand and we cannot put the pieces back together. Speak to us. We ask friends to speak to us and for us. We encourage you to take advantage of the body of Christ. Father, we do pray that we would be humble people, broken people, wise people. Pray that we would not set our hearts on things that are not eternal, things that will only fail us and disappoint us. Instead, we would set our hearts on eternity. We would gratefully acknowledge that you've given us life in your son. Even though you haven't given us answers to all questions, we know you and we have life in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.